0: Let's pray. Father, we trust you, and we trust your word. Pray that your Spirit would work and move to make Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, look amazing and glorious. Help us to exalt His nature, that we would find rest and joy in Him, and we'd be satisfied in You. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, "Amen." If I offered you a teaspoon of vanilla extract, would you eat it? No. (laughs) It's not, it smells good, it does not taste good. Not by itself. If I offered you a tablespoon of baking soda, would you eat it? Probably not. I hope not. If I offered you a stick of butter, would you eat it? Yes. (laughs) Uh, It's not as good as it is is with other things. My mom once told me that um, her older sister, when she was little, would climb up in the cabinet and get a spoonful of salt and eat the whole spoonful. Just mouthful of salt. Straight. Pretty gross, huh? Yet, I will gladly pour a spoonful of salt over every meal that I eat. consume the same amount and though you would not eat straight vanilla extract or straight baking soda and probably not a whole stick of butter on its own you would put them in a bowl full of flour and sugar with an egg and bake cookies wouldn't you and eat them together so individually these items aren't good but together they create something delicious it's not much different from from life and from Jesus' supreme reign and rule over our lives. Each event in our life, every moment, every situation, every circumstance may not be what you want it to be, like a tablespoonful of salt. Or every event or a particular situation or circumstance may actually be what you want, like, say, a handful of chocolate chips. But each of these events, the good and the bad, the salt and the chocolate chips, produce something glorious, God's will for your life. Every moment, God is pouring ingredients into your life to make something good. In order to do that, to make something good, he has to be sovereign over all the details and all the ingredients if he's going to turn you into a perfect cookie. So, it is not only good for our theology that we understand the supremacy of Jesus in our lives, it's good for our life, it's good for our attitudes, it's good for our endurance, it's good for our hearts. And that is what Paul establishes about Jesus here in Colossians 1.17, that Jesus reigns supreme over each ingredient that becomes your life. And in the end, it's good. So in verse 17, Colossians 1.17, we covered the first half of the verse last week. So we'll do the second half this week. But the whole verse says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So last week we discovered that Jesus being before all things refers to his eternal deity, that he existed before all things. And what verse 16 tells us is that he created all things And that eternality of Jesus is just one of the pillars of the nature of Jesus that upholds his supremacy. So if you think of Jesus as being supreme is the house, the house, his supremacy is upheld by many of his different characteristics or different aspects of his nature. Like, for example, if I told you uh, that you were a good man, I would need pillars to uphold this house that says good man. And that pillar would be like uh, giving, um, nurturing, uh, loves his family, provides for his family. You know? and, and so these pillars are aspects of that man's nature, and they uphold this idea that he's a good man. It's the same thing with Jesus' supremacy. He is supreme over all things. That is Paul's overall point in verses 15 through 20, and every verse he's just building pillar after pillar after pillar to reveal the nature and characteristics of Jesus to show us that upon these, this nature of Christ, upon all these characteristics and different aspects of his nature, stands this ruling, reigning, supreme, sovereign God. And that is the point of these texts, the supremacy of Jesus. In the second half of verse 17, Paul builds another pillar to exalt that supremacy of Christ. And that pillar is Jesus' sustainability of creation, or what I would call his sovereignty. What is abundantly clear through these verses is the supreme nature of Jesus. And we see this all over Scripture, right? So, like, he is declared in the Bible as greater than the angels— uh, greater than Satan, greater than the rest of mankind, and therefore greater than all other creatures, greater than the creation itself, because he is before creation and he made all of creation and therefore has to be better than all creation. So he reigns supreme over all things. From the smallest, most microscopic viewable thing that we can see to the largest, most distant viewable thing that we can see in the universe, all of it he reigns supreme over. He made all things, so he's greater than all things. So if he is supreme over all things, then that means he has to be sovereign over all things or rule over the functions of all things. Meaning, there can be nothing that operates without his sovereign control. If Jesus is supreme over all things, which I assume we all agree on because that's pretty clear in Scripture, then there is nothing that Jesus doesn't rule. If something were to operate on its own without Jesus' supremacy over it, then that thing would have to have its own sovereignty and its own supremacy in order to function. If Paul uses Jesus' sovereignty as a pillar to uphold his supremacy, then that means that anything that Jesus is supreme over, he is also supreme. Sovereign over. And since he is supreme over all things, he is therefore sovereign over all things. Meaning nothing can exist or operate without his rule or reign or control. If it did, if something could operate without Jesus' rule, reign, supreme, or sovereignty or control over, then that thing would have to have its own agency outside of Jesus where it does not submit to his supremacy, control, reign, or rule, or sovereignty. Which, according to Paul, would be impossible. Nothing exists in that realm where Jesus isn't sovereign because that realm where Jesus isn't sovereign doesn't exist. So, the question we really have to try to figure out here in verse 17 is what does it mean when Paul says that he holds all things together. So verses 16 and 17 tell us that he made all things, and then, that's verse 16, and then verse 17, that he was before all things, and now verse 17, the end of verse 17, tells us about how he continues to uphold all things, to hold it all together, and to be the eternal God over all creation. So first he was before it, and then he he made it, and now he continues to uphold it all. Without his continual activity from Jesus, all things would break apart, would disintegrate, or cease to exist. And Hebrews 1.3 tells us the same thing. He writes, he, speaking of Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. So all of creation, the entire universe, maintains its stability by the sovereign powerful word of Christ to declare its existence, to maintain its existence, to uphold its existence. And I think there are a couple hurdles we have to take mentally to get there. Number one, I think we oftentimes kind of think like, what's the point? Like we think of something like gravity, right? Or, or maybe just this wooden pulpit. And we go, well, he just he just set things in order and then put them in a natural motion and then just lets them run in their own natural Motion, right? Like gravity puts gravity into play, establishes the rules of gravity, and goes okay. And then winds it like a clock, you know, like one of those little—what um, are those little things called? Those little musical boxes where you wind it, and the little ballerina spins in a circle. And right, so he like he, he creates the object, he creates gravity, and then, like winds it up, and goes okay, go for like uh, ten thousand years or twenty thousand years, however long. That's not sovereignty. That's creation. You could say that if you call him creator, you could say I exist before I create this music box and I created the music box. So verse 16 still is true. The beginning of verse 17 is still true. But now we got a problem with the end of verse 17. Because if I wind that and let it go, I no longer hold it together. I don't maintain it. I don't reign over it. I don't rule over it. I could fix it if there's a problem. And that's how we tend to think of God or tend to think of Jesus. He sets things in order and when they start breaking, it goes, oh, oh, I'm going to fix this problem that just came up. Whereas what what Paul is teaching us is that gravity, for example, doesn't just isn't just some concept that Jesus created and then just set into order and then just allowed it to operate, but he is constantly maintaining all gravitational forces which means he's operating every atom and molecule that's involved in gravity all over the entire universe from the most distant star to whether you know you pick up a pen pencil and drop it and he is operating all the gravitational forces in all the universe and I think the hurdle we need to leap is this idea that we think why why would he do that what a colossal waste of his time and energy the problem with that thinking is nothing can be a colossal waste of his time or energy because nothing can waste his time or energy. He doesn't get tired. Right? If you ask me to do three things at the same time, I won't be able to do them. I tell people this all the time. If you see me doing one thing and you're talking to me, I am not listening to you. You have to get my attention. Tap me on the shoulder and go, I know you're not listening to me, you put your phone down or whatever and look me in the eyes so that you know, so that I know you're listening cuz I can't do a couple of things at the same time. I can only do one thing at one time. And we talked about this a couple months ago but but this idea that we you know psychologists have pretty much concluded that no one can genuinely multitask. We can move from one task to another quickly, but that's not genuine multitasking. That's just managing tasks efficiently. Jesus can multitask everything. He can maintain gravity, uphold stars in the distant universe, and maintain the collection of your body, a a bag of bones and muscles and blood, and keep it all operating and sovereignly move it all at the same time. That's not hard for him. To do it with billions of people and billions of animals and all the trees and the oceans and the universe and the sun and everything, all of it. So he's not... Just setting things in motion and then letting them go and then coming in and swooping in like Superman and fixing them when they go away. That's not how he operates. He's holding it all together. He is sovereignly maintaining all of creation at all times. Physics reveals to us that in an atom there are. Protons and electrons kind of swirling around like they're in space, like they're orbiting stars. And the place in which these protons and electrons swirl inside the atom, there is this vast amount of space relative in size to space, outer space, with stars and planets, the distance between them. And so, with all that space, how do all these atoms stay together? They're not glued together, not stuck together, they're not on a track. How do they maintain their cohesive nature and not just whip out of of sorts and burst? Well, scientists, or what would you call them, physicists, don't know. If you ask them, they don't know. There are theories, of course. They've got plenty of theories, but they don't really know for sure. So I thought about this. You know, I could go up to a physicist, who's been studying atoms his entire life and go, you might not know, but I'm a pastor and I know. (laughs) And then I go, oh, yeah, sure, buddy, right? But I do know. I do know. And I'm sure there's a a mechanics in physics to it that that they're still yet to discover, and I don't know what that is, and they don't know what it is. But what I do know is this, that Colossians 1.17 and Hebrews 1.3 tells us how those atoms and all that space maintain and hold together It is by Jesus and by the word of his power. And I don't know many genuine believers who would disagree with Jesus' authority and sovereignty and power to maintain all the atoms in the universe. But I do know many Christians who would disagree with the larger implications of that truth. If Jesus does hold all atoms together, then we have to also believe that he holds all things together. Why? Because all things are made up of atoms. Right? So, if he, so we get down to this idea of atoms because if he is holding together everything, including atoms, that is the smallest structure that we can get down to to understand how he holds everything else together. And so him holding every atom together in your body, that's the microscopic level of his sovereignty. On a bigger scale, he is therefore holding you together. Your skin stays on your bones because he holds all the atoms together in your skin. The ceiling in this building doesn't collapse on our heads and crush us because he is holding together every atom and every beam on all the ceiling roof trusses above us. And if he decides to let go, it'll collapse. The atoms wouldn't break apart, but he would move the atoms in a way that would cause it to collapse. So... The entirety of planet Earth itself doesn't explode or implode and collapse in on itself because Jesus is holding together every atom of planet Earth as well as everything to the extent of the entire universe. Now, if that is true, then that also means he is responsible for every atom that moves in your brain as well because he doesn't just hold the atoms together but he holds together the space he's sovereign over supreme over the space between atoms and space inside of atoms and the things around them and the things in which atoms move are made up of different things and those things are made up of atoms all of it is atoms and he's controlling all of them, and all of them create from the the tiny synapses that are microscopic in your brain to the giant brain that you have itself. All of it he's in control of. And so the movement of atoms he's sovereign over because other things in your body are moving those atoms, and he's in control of those other things because those other things are made up of atoms. You guys with me? (laughs) So even the motion of atoms that move in your brain, he directs because he also maintains and upholds the space within them. So your thoughts are just a series of electrical signals, synapses firing in your brain, okay? Each thought you have, every idea that comes to mind, every word that you choose to think and then say or think and then not say, all of it is a series of atoms moving in certain directions And those electrical signals in your brain move from one synapse to the next and then move from one part of the brain to the next. From the part of your brain that processes the the thought and then from the part of your brain that moves it from thought to speech or the decision center, the prefrontal cortex that tells you say it or don't say that and turns it from thought to actual words or thought into action. It's all a series of firing neurons that produce what we see as behavior. And if Jesus is sovereignly holding together every one of those atoms and everything in between, and therefore is supreme over the space or the place into which those atoms move, which is your thinking process and is ultimately the expression of your thoughts and behavior, then he is supreme and sovereign over where they go and what they produce and how they reveal themselves. He's sovereign over your behavior and over your thoughts and over your activity, meaning Jesus is sovereign over everything. Because we all love the idea of Jesus being in control. We sing songs about it. God is in control and we love singing that. And when things go bad, we go, ha, it's all right, God's in control. And we love the idea of God being in control. God's in control of the weather. God's in control of the government. Is he in control of the government? Do we really believe that? Because if God's in control of the government, if Jesus is in control of the government, then he's in control of people. Because those people, because uh, the government is made up of people. When we say government, we're talking about the people who rule our nation and make decisions. Those people are making decisions. And uh, Romans 13.1 tells us that he's ultimately in control of that government. And so, we love this idea that Jesus is in control of everything. He's in control of the stars and the moon and the sun, and he's in control of the trees and the birds and, the, and everything. He's in control of the situations, and he dictates and directs. And nowhere in Scripture do we find Jesus responding or God responding to activity, being reactive as opposed to proactive. There are a few instances where we find it looks like God's being reactive, like He's, but He's what He does, like with Abraham when Abraham says, uh, "You know, I'm going to go, we go save Sodom, and uh, if I find 50 righteous men, you'll save them." God's like, "Fine." Comes back, uh, I couldn't find 50, 40? Uh, fine. Looks like God's changing His mind. God's not changing His mind. He's teaching Abraham a very important lesson. That's what He's doing. God's not confused about what's going to happen. Because he's in control of what's going to happen. My point is we love the idea of God being in control. We love the idea of Jesus being in control. Because when life is hard, he feels like a crutch, right? Like, oh, something, there has to be a reason, a meaning, a purpose to the difficulty that I'm going through. And the only way I can explain it is if God is in control. And that's when we love that he's in control. Until I tell you that you're not in control. And we go, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't touch my free will. He's in control of everything except for me and my decisions, my thoughts. These are my atoms that are firing neurons through synapses in my brain. My decisions. He can be in control of everything except for my will because my will is free. We think that way. There's a problem with that, it's not in the Bible. And here's the reality. It feels free, doesn't it? Like I could pick this phone up right here and just like chuck it at lawn as hard as I can. And you'd be like, why'd you do that? Because like, I chose to. And right now I just chose not to. I just made a choice. It felt free. It felt like my choice. That was an experience of will. I made a decision. I'm not saying you don't have a will. Of course you have a will. The question is, how free is it? So we experience life as free will, like we're making a decision that's free. But what we just learned is there is no realm in all of existence where Jesus is not supreme or sovereign over. So there cannot be anything that is genuinely free from his supremacy and sovereignty. And we experience it as will. And it feels like what we would call free, but it's not free from his sovereignty. And ultimately, what we will discover is in eternity, what we will be, uh, some people get scared of the idea of eternity because it feels like, oh, I'm trapped in this eternal place forever. It's, oh my gosh, it's forever. It never ends. It feels, it feels like I'm trapped. Eternity will be the most freeing experience you ever have. That will be the ultimate experience of total freedom. And you will never be more controlled by God at any time in your life than when you are in eternal life. And it will be an experience of absolute freedom because genuine freedom comes in Christ. So, I don't want to dive further into this idea of free will and have like this debate with myself up here in front of you about free will and not free will and sovereignty free will because that really isn't Paul's point. But I'm very aware that that is the conclusion that we all jump to. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. If he's sovereign over my atoms firing in my brain, which are the decision-making process of my, then he's sovereign over my choices, then that takes away my free will. That's a normal question. And there's lots of answers to that question. It would take several sermons to address them all. So I'm aware of the question that it creates. I'm aware of the dilemma it probably creates. And if you've never thought this before or if you don't think, uh, if you're thinking to yourself, whoa, 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 I've never heard this idea of not having free will. What are you talking about? And that sounds kind of like wacky to you. It's for another day. But there is a, a reality about sovereignty and supremacy in Christ here in this text that is a very positive, helpful reality. Okay, And I didn't want to skip the idea of free will and just pass over it while leaving you here going, well, i got questions. I can't answer all the questions. We'll get to it one day. Not today, because this text doesn't demand that I address that question. What this text demands is that we talk about our responsibility, because that is a reality. I'm telling you, you're not making free choices, but the Bible is abundantly clear that you are given commands, that you are responsible for following. And there is this very... So we've got a conundrum, right? And and there was a a pastor, a preacher, I forgot his name, Um, but he explained it like this. He talked about uh, human responsibility or free will and God's sovereignty. And he said, think about it like this. You look up at the ceiling and there's two holes in the ceiling. And coming out of each hole is a rope. Okay? What you don't know. So one rope represents God's sovereignty and the other rope represents free, not free will, but uh, your will. Okay, your human experience, your human responsibility to obey the commands of God. What you don't see is above the ceiling, those ropes go through those holes, and there's a pulley above, and that rope goes over the pulley and back down the other side. So there's not two ropes, there's one. And if you grabbed one rope and tried to hold on, you'd pull the rope down, and you wouldn't be able to hold yourself up. If you grabbed the other rope, same thing would happen. The only way to genuinely experience God is to hold both ropes. That's the only way the rope will ever hold together. Now what that preacher goes on to say is that one day in eternity, we'll finally be able to see that there was a pulley up there and that it was the same rope the whole time. I don't agree with that. What I think is the Bible does have answers that we can understand now. We can tear that ceiling down today. Not going to do it today, but we can. And the Bible does give us answers. But ultimately what Paul is really driving home right here is human responsibility. That you do have a will in which you operate and you are held accountable for. And I understand that that creates a dilemma, what seems like a logical dilemma, and I don't think there is one, and as badly as I want to just abandon the rest of the sermon and address that, I really can't because that's not what Paul's talking about. What, What we see is that Jesus is causing our obedience. So the negative side is, the question would be, if, if I'm not responsible, if he's sovereign over my decision-making process, if he's so- sovereign over my will, then doesn't that mean that he would be sovereign over my sin? Is he causing me to sin? Are you saying Jesus is causing me to sin? Wait, the Bible says he can't do any evil. Dilemma. And I want to answer that, but I'm not going to, so instead I'm going to give you the positive side and tell you this. The point that Paul is making is that Jesus causes your righteous behavior. And I get that from Ezekiel 36, 27, because he is the one doing the work of righteousness in your life. And Ezekiel tells us this when he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you cause, not suggest not encourage, not nudge, cause. I will, another word for cause, force, will cause you to walk in my statutes and that word cause now applies to the second half of the sentence, cause you to be careful to obey my rules. Your obedience to the Bible is the sovereign, supreme power and work and the word of Jesus Christ in your life. Why though? Because what it does is it protects us from what I was talking about earlier. We're like, oh, God's in control, God's in control. Well, unless it comes to me. When it gets to me, it's my will, my decision, my choices, my, 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 me, me. It's all about me and my freedom to do as I please. And we we think that because we look at our bad behavior and say, well, Jesus couldn't have caused the bad behavior. But the, the flip side of that is if we do have that will that's free, then who gets the glory when you do the right thing? You do. And that, that is not biblical. Ephesians 2 8 and 9. That he has given us the gift of faith by his grace for salvation. Why? So that no one may boast. What does that mean? So that no one will take his glory for your righteousness, including you. You don't get the glory you don't get the glory for your righteousness you don't get the praise you don't get the honor you don't get the glory you don't get the recognition you know what you get the joy of glorifying God and you know what he does in the end he brings you to him and you bow before him in his glory and he says well done good and faithful servant I have caused you to do righteous and you have done righteousness and you got joy and I got glory. And you know what I'm going to do for you now for the rest of eternity? I'm going to dump all of my glory all over you forever. You didn't get it on earth. You endured hardships, pains, difficulties, a, a rough life. Life is hard, full of sin, permeated with sin. Every aspect of your life is just... Full of sin and problems and hardships and difficulties. And yeah, you did a lot of righteous things, but I ah, did a lot of stupid things too. And, and life is hard. But in the end, your righteousness was, was me causing you to do righteousness. Not for your glory, but for mine. And you get the joy so that when you get to heaven, you would know how good I am. And then, then and only then, will I share with you all of my glory. And we become heirs with the Son, Jesus Christ. Heirs to God the Father, and we inherit the eternal kingdom with him, and we share in his glory forever. I think that's a great deal, personally. So he does the work. Jesus is doing the work that is your righteousness or your obedience. Anytime you do anything right, any act of obedience is his work. Your righteousness is the product of the Spirit sovereignly ordaining the firing of each of those atoms that produces whatever moving activity goes on in your brain or your body that appears to us as behavior or attitude or speech. That doesn't make us robots. That makes us subjects. Like a king demanding that his people do particular things. And they have to do it. Kind of a failing analogy there because a human king is just a human. Our king, sovereign over every atom in your brain and in your body. Believers are not operating on their own. They're operating in the spirit. As a believer... Don't you want Jesus to get the glory? Don't you not want to take responsibility for the good behavior you do so that you don't get the glory so that Jesus does? Isn't that our desire as believers? If so, then what is the problem? What problem do we have with him assuring that he gets his glory by ordaining Sovereignly and supremely ruling over our behavior. Because he has to. If he leaves us to our own and doesn't rule over, and sovereignly and supremely rule over our behavior, and leaves us to our own, and we operate without him, then we will not give him glory. Why? Because we will sin. Yeah, but he gave us the Holy Spirit, so then we don't have to sin. Yeah, exactly. He gave you the Holy Spirit, and that is the same spirit that Ezekiel says will cause your obedience. Believers are not operating on their own. They're operating in the spirit. And the spirit is the spirit of Jesus who holds all your atoms together and uses them to cause obedience and righteousness and holiness. And without that sovereignty, on an atomic level, we would fire into sin. So the question then is, like, what does this really mean to us? Well, it doesn't mean that we're free from the responsibility of our behavior. Because I could preach to you all day about the sovereignty of Jesus over all of your behavior. And at the end of the day, you still have an experience, and I still have an experience, that feels to me like a choice. And I, the Bible does not remove that choice. And again, there's that dilemma. Human responsibility, God's sovereignty, and that idea right there is... A year's worth of, sorry, I could do 52 sermons in a row on that. And you'd still be like, man, I got questions still. Okay, so can't answer that now. But what we can do is look at the positive side of it. Scripture does not remove our responsibility from sin. So the implication is that not that we argue about free will or try to defend this idea uh, or argue for autonomy apart from Christ's sovereign rule over our lives. We can't have that argument. You know what happens in the book of Romans when the Romans argue, because Paul says to the Romans, "God made an, a, a sovereign choice to choose um, Jacob over Esau." Well, maybe Jacob was better than Esau. Nope, he says, even specifies, it was before either of them did anything good or bad, he chose him. Why? Because he chose him. Well, why? Because he chose to choose him. That's it. That's the reason. Because it's his will. Period. That's how Paul answers it. And then then, then the question from the Romans, naturally, is, whoa, 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 whoa. Then how can God find us responsible or hold us accountable? You know how Paul answers that question? I'm going to paraphrase it. This is what it means, though. Romans 9, 20-23. He says, you don't get to ask that question. (laughs) I was like... And the funny thing is, he says you don't get to ask that question. He does answer it eventually, okay? But he says you don't get to ask that question because your responsibility is not to question God's sovereign rule. Your responsibility is to submit to his sovereignty over your activity and rejoice that you were chosen to be given the righteousness of Christ and to live out that righteousness through sovereign power and enjoy him forever. So don't waste your time arguing about how God sovereignly has called you into his good grace and love and joy. Enjoy it! That's Paul's answer. And that is the attitude that the total sovereignty of Jesus is meant to produce in you. That doesn't mean we can't ask questions, guys. Listen, we should be asking tons of questions about difficult concepts and ideas that are hard to swallow. And I'm sure you have many. And that's great. And we can keep, you know, just keep coming back to church. I'll keep preaching. We'll get to them eventually. We'll see how the Spirit leads. We're going through the book of Colossians next week. Verse 18. Verse 18 is awesome. Verse 17 is awesome. Verse 16 is awesome. Actually, verse 15 might be my favorite. I don't know. They're so good, all of them. Okay, so. These are all so, such good verses, and eventually there, there are answers. As we go through these texts, God will reveal the truth for Grace Church in his time as we go through the Bible verse by verse. In the meantime, you're going to have tons of questions, okay? It's okay to have questions. Come ask them to me personally. Just realize these aren't simple answers. They're complex. Think about it. Isn't life complex? Okay? What's one plus one? Does anyone know? Shout it out if you know it. Two. Okay, so two people know that. They... Who said three? So... Oh, that was my son. Okay, so <clears throat> um, one plus one is not hard. It's not a difficult concept. It's two, right? So what do you do when you get past addition? Move on to something harder. Multiplication. All right and division, oh subtraction. So <laughs> we skip subtraction. Sorry, buddy. Okay, subtraction, then multiplication, then division. Then we get into you know algebra, and then we get into calculus, and then we get into deeper and deeper concepts. Why? Because the more you know, the more complex concepts become if you want to grow in the knowledge of god you have to move on from elementary truths like jesus loved you and died on the cross for your sins i mean that's the most glorious truth in the entire universe of course we preach that and talk about it and it's important to repeat and teach and learn and discover and 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 enjoy and worship we're always going to talk about that but if you want to grow you got to move out of first grade math you got to move on a first-grade Bible and move on to more difficult concepts. And I realize that everyone in the church is at a different place. Some of you are, like, still in first-grade math. Some of you are in, like, you know, college algebra. Some of you are in, like, calculus. And some of you have been math wizards your whole life or whatever, right? So spiritually speaking, we're all at different levels. For some of you, this is like, oh yeah, no, I know all about this. Some of you are like, I've never heard this before. And some of you are like, I've heard of it, and this sounds super wacky, and I don't understand it. And some of you are like, ooh, this sounds interesting, I want to learn more. We're all at different places. And this is why we, this is why I, 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 seriously, like, I I struggle to preach some of these texts sometimes because I know they're counter to our natural inclination that we have a free will. Because everybody who gets saved the moment they're saved thinks they have free will it's in all of us because it is the natural inclination of our sinful minds to be autonomous and free from a god who controls me and so to grow out of the concept of free will we have to mature in our biblical knowledge and so i struggle sometimes to say these things because i'm like some of this stuff is going to offend people to the point where they don't want to come back and i have two choices I can pander to you and not say hard things so that you all come back and have a wonderful time and then we can all go to heaven as first graders. Or we can push through, struggle with these concepts together and realize that this is not just a theological exercise, but this is is an exercise in knowing God. Knowing what he's truly like. If you're thinking, what are the applications of this in my life? The applications are enormous because only if God is sovereign over everything can I even begin to grasp or swallow the hardship of a doctor telling me, you have cancer. Because if it's on me, then I go, what did I do wrong? Why would you allow this, God? Only with a sovereign God can I say, you have ordained this for my joy in you. You have ordained this as a hardship and a suffering. It might kill me, but you will be glorified. And I will be satisfied because you are causing in me pain. And if you're thinking God would never cause pain, read Lamentations 3. He literally says, and Lamentations 3, I think it's 30 or 32 or 31 or 33, one of those verses, he says he causes calamity. What a mean God. Next verse, but he doesn't want to. Because he's a shepherd who loves you. Hard concepts, and again, that, should, that, that, that little concept right there that just chucked at you, he causes calamity, but doesn't want to. How can God do two different things at the same time? How can he want this, but do this? If he does it, then he wants it. But he says he wants this.. Whoa. There's a whole concept right there that we can address. I'm not going to. But it, again, just another question, another concept to dive into for your growth. That's like, you know, college calculus. We'll get there, all right? So I have to preach these truths. I have to say what Paul is saying in verse 17. He holds it all together. There is no Adam that operates without his sovereignty. And in that is an even deeper reality about the nature of God that would blow our minds. Just this concept that God could create for you A reality that you live in, an existence that you experience, that you walk and talk and speak and move your hands. I'm choosing to do this when I preach. I'm I'm moving my hands however I want. I'm saying what I think is coming out of my mouth. But all of us would agree, right? All of us would agree, Mark, when you preach, it better be the Holy Spirit preaching, right? Because if I told you, no, I don't need the Holy Spirit, I got this. You'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mr. Arrogant over here. But I'm going to go do my job all week, five days a week from 8 to 5, go do my job on my own. I'm going to talk. I'm going to speak. I'm going to type. I'm going to write reports. I'm going to do this and that. How is what I'm doing right now any different than what you do on Tuesday at 3 o'clock? Because what comes out of your mouth better be the Holy Spirit, right? So we admit that the Holy Spirit ought to be speaking through me but we don't want to we don't apply it across the board it's illogical we have to be consistent with our theology and so there's this whole reality that we have to accept and absorb that everything that you do in your life every decision every hand movement every thought every word all of it is an experience for you of choice yet a sovereign god can rule over that choice as you experience it like a choice, yet he's sovereign over it. That's how complex God's mind is, to create an existence for you, a reality for you that feels like a choice, and is a choice, and you do have a will. It doesn't just feel like a will. It's not like a pretend will. It doesn't just feel like a choice, but it's not a choice. It is a choice, and it is a will, of yours that he is sovereign over and he can create that reality for you and they both exist both ropes hanging from the ceiling at the same time and it's one rope that that leaps over our logic but the bible gives us plenty of answers to make it logical There's so much to discover here about the nature of Jesus' total supremacy. And I have to talk about this sovereignty because when we talk about Jesus' supremacy, Paul has to talk about his sovereignty. He can't be supreme over the church, which he'll talk about in the next few verses. He can't be supreme over your life. He can't be supreme over creation. He can't be supreme over all these things if he's not sovereignly ruling and reigning over every atom and molecule that exists and causing all things. He can't. And if you think to yourself, that's not what my Bible says. Well, it's what my Bible says. There's so much biblical evidence that he is causing everything. So this this is so valuable to us as believers. Don't run from this. If this ticks you off, if you're like, I don't like this concept at all, don't run from it dig into it if you dig into this and you think still don't believe it fine but don't abandon don't run from it dive in i'm going to dive into it i want you to join me as we dive into it and we're going to keep digging okay i'm not interested in like like i'm i'm a teacher i'm supposed to teach okay if you come to my classroom and you're in first grade you better believe at the end of the year you're going to graduate and go to second grade right so i want you to graduate and move on to second grader eighth grader twelfth grader whatever it is whoever stage you're at in life we all got to move up let me teach you cuz the implications of this sovereignty of jesus ultimately comes down to one thing a choice a choice to submit your life to Christ. If he rules all the atoms and he rules all things and he holds them all together and the purpose of that sovereign rule in your life then is that you would experience his rule by submitting to his supremacy. That you would give him your choices, your decisions, that you would give him your family, that you would give him your job, that you would give him your activity, that you would give him every thought. That is why 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. The point of Jesus' sovereignty is not doctrinal or theological. The point of Jesus' sovereignty is for us to submit to his complete supremacy over everything, including every atom in our mind and every thought and every activity and every decision, everything in life. So So to find him to be our greatest treasure and joy for his glory and for our joy and our good. Exploring the other implications of his sovereignty are very much worth our time. But either way, his supremacy is meant to create a particular response in you. And that response is submission to his rule, which is obedience to his word, which is joy in him and glory to God. Let's pray. Hard truths, God. Hard truths. Correct any that are wrong. Give grace where we don't understand and teach us your word. And help us ultimately to submit to your supreme rule so that we would find joy in who you really are. So we'd be able to endure and live this life in a way that brings you the most glory and in and, and a way that satisfies us most in you. Be with your people as they go bless their life bless the road that's before them bless their work week their job their families their decisions meet them where they're at help them in their struggles teach them to love you get them in your word cause them to pray help them to lean on you to depend on you to treasure you lord help us to rely on each other as a church to work together to serve together to unite together in one common purpose to find you to be satisfying and to lead lost people to your throne. Show us Jesus every day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.